All right, well, turn in your Bibles with me, please, to Genesis chapter six. Genesis six, here we go. (laughs) While the kids are going back and you're flipping in your Bibles, I'm going to uh, pray for the Lord's help. Lord, I ask that you will send your spirit down upon me and upon this congregation now to illumine the glory of Christ through your word. Speak to us now, not to fill our heads with knowledge, but to make much of Christ and to save us, to deliver us, to heal us. Amen. So the apostle Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 3 that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I firmly believe that. And that gives me confidence when we get to difficult texts like the one we're about to read. All scripture is God-breathed. So, since all scripture includes Genesis 6, verses 1 through 8, we're going to read that now and see where we can go. Ready? All right, Genesis 6, starting in verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, And also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. My prayer this morning is that by God's grace, we would move from the place of this passage is so weird to the place of just collapsing with all of our exhaustion and all of our need into Jesus, who is mighty and merciful. That's what I'm asking the Lord to do. Now we've got three commitments at Christ Church about the Bible, right? And first of all, we let God set the priorities. We let God say where the emphases of scripture lie and what's important for us to hear. Second, we trust the Bible. And third, we're not afraid of the Bible. So let's agree to put this into practice today, these three things with God's help and grow in them. So by by way of introduction, I wanna talk about that first commitment for a moment, that we let God set the priorities. So I'm not coming and saying, I've got a sermon series I'd really like to preach on a topic necessarily. We're coming and we're reading through Genesis and doing our best to see what God has put exclamation points around, what God has bolded in the text, so to speak, because he's the one that gets to do that. It's God's word. So it's easy to come to these, a text like this, it's kind of small, a small little story. It's a difficult little story, 
And, it, and it's kind of a bump in the road on the way to the flood. And we all know from our children's storybook Bibles, the, the flood story. But God has put a bunch of exclamation points around this text. So I'll just get into three reasons why this text is so, or three indications that this text is very important, okay? Um, and, and yes, my introduction does have three points. I'm very sorry. <laughs> um, so right here in this spot, we see that this is the reason for the flood. So we all know the flood story, but this story is not in our children's storybook Bibles, but it's the reason, it's the, the catalyst for the flood. So it, if we listen to Jesus and we wanna learn about when Jesus is coming back, then we're gonna have to understand the flood. Because when the Pharisees asked Jesus about the kingdom of God and when the kingdom of God's gonna come, he said, well, it'll be like the flood. It'll be like the days of Noah. And if we wanna understand the flood, then we have to understand this story about the sons of God and the Nephilim. It's important. Second indication is that this story sort of reverberates and echoes through scripture in really key moments. I'll give you one by way of example. When the Israelites had been freed from Egypt, they're wandering in the wilderness toward the promised land. They get to the Jordan and they send in 12 spies. Do you remember the story? 12 spies go into this promised land, this new sort of Eden-like place, and they take fruit from the land and bring it back as evidence of the goodness of the land. Look how good this food is, but there was a problem. Numbers 13 tells us the story. I'll read from verse 32 and 33. So they brought to the people of Israel, the spies did, a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, the land through which we've gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seemed to them. After the flood, after the Exodus, Nephilim in the land, in the promised land. We don't know why or how. The Bible doesn't explain how there are Nephilim before and after the flood. We're left to surmise, but there they are. And it's because of their fright of these giants that they refuse to obey God and go into the promised land. That's a very key moment in scripture. It leads to 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. It leads to a whole generation of Israelites not getting to enter God's rest. It leads to Moses himself not getting to enter into God's rest. Entering the promised land is a crucial and pivotal story in the Bible and it hinges on Genesis 6. God has put exclamation points around this passage. And in fact, the reason why God sends them into the promised land, he says clearly in one of his prophets, it's not because you're so righteous that I'm giving you this land, Israel. It's because they are so wicked. They have corrupted the land and I'm gonna send you in like a flood to cleanse the land. They're the reason, the Nephilim, the Anakim, the Rephaim, these descendants of the Nephilim, people linked to Genesis 6 are the reason why the Israelites go into the land in the first place. Okay, third and lastly, Jesus and the apostles reference back to this story quite a few times in important ways. So we let the Bible interpret the Bible. It's basically the first rule of Bible interpretation. The Bible is authoritative, God breathed, true, trustworthy. So we let it speak to itself. 
And it does quite a few times on this passage. In Matthew and Luke, in those two gospels, the Pharisees ask, like I alluded to earlier, when is the kingdom of God going to come back? And Jesus responds by talking about this passage, Genesis 6. This story was central in the mind of Jesus to understanding the judgment and the salvation that come together in the kingdom of God. When the apostle Peter wants to embolden and fortify the church against evil and suffering and oppression and martyrdom, he reaches for this story, Genesis 6. And he says, then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly from trials. If he delivered Noah from this, he can deliver you as well. When Jude, one of Jesus's brothers, wants to strengthen the church in the mighty hope of Jesus and in the face of false teachers, he says, contend for the faith, contend for it, fight for it. He reaches for this story in Genesis 6. This is just a handful of examples. God has shown us through the design of his word and by the lips of Jesus and the pen of his apostles that this passage is really important. So we let God set the priorities and then we trust the Bible and we're not afraid of it. Now, before we get into kind of the meat of the sermon, let me end this already too long introduction uh, with this thing. (laughs) This story firmly suggests to us that powerful spiritual forces are at work behind the evil and oppression of this world. That's the claim of this story. There is a human-centered fall in Genesis 3, and there's a spiritual being's fall story as well in Genesis 6. And if you're uncomfortable with that, like I am, let me remind you and myself that this simple faith delivered to us that we believe our whole life, our whole hope, everything about us as Christians is wrapped up in the idea that 2,000 years ago, the spirit of the living God overshadowed a virgin Jew named Mary, and she became pregnant with a man who was both fully man and fully God, who would grow, bear all the sins of the world on his shoulders, die, come back to life three days later with a body that can walk through walls and then bodily ascend to the spiritual realm. That's the faith we believe. We are not afraid of the Bible. We are not afraid of the miraculous, of the supernatural. This world is not contained and explained by what our eyes can see and what our minds can understand. And as Christians, we must get comfortable with that. Okay, so now my goal is to let this story do its work on us, to hear it, not explain it away, uh, not provide lots and lots of caveats about the story and you know all of that. Let's just let it work on us and see how the Bible explains itself and interacts with itself for the good of his church and the glory of the church's bridegroom. Okay, two final caveats. <laughs> it's really a five-point introduction. Um, this is a very PG-13 story and we have lots of children in the room today. So I'm going to do my best to keep this very pg I'm going to put out a video later this week going through the text with great detail um, that I would ask you if you, um, if you would like it all to carve out 30 minutes of your time this week, probably by Wednesday, and, and go through that and it will get into a lot more of the rationale through scripture for some of the claims that I'm making today. So look out for that video, it'll come through email. And if I don't have your email, you can put it on a connect card and drop it in the box in the back.
Um, second caveat is that I'm, my goal is to preach the word of God in such a way that if you disagree and, and feel like you're a bit frustrated, that you're arguing with scripture and not with me. But this is a really hard text. So I ask for your grace and that you would be open to the spirit of God to minister to your hearts today. All right, that's the introduction. Longest in Christchurch history. <laughs> so now point number one, aliens and Nephilim. It's a joke. <laughs> I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that to you. <laughs> All right, point number one, human sin is complicated. It's complicated. So Genesis 3, we looked at it a few weeks ago. The first rebellion against God narrated in scripture is in Genesis 3, and it's a human rebellion, right? It was written carefully with some key words that we have to pay attention to and some key ideas. So first of all, you notice that in the garden in Genesis 3, there's a woman. And there's also this serpent who seems to be some sort of spiritual being. He talks, for instance. And of course, the Bible later tells us that ancient serpent is the one we call the Satan and the devil. And so you've got this spiritual being and, and this woman, the serpent deceives, and the woman does three main things in this order. She saw that something was good and she took it. Saw, good, took. There are only three stories in the Bible that have those three words in that order in the Old Testament, and they're really important. So now in Genesis 6, we get a second rebellion story. It's shaped like Genesis 3, and it has these same constellation of themes and words. You've got spiritual beings, human women. It's a spiritual rebellion. And remember, there are two realms of creation. There's heaven and earth. And that shouldn't weird us out because it's all through the Bible, right? The earth is populated with fleshly creatures and the spiritual realm with spiritual creatures, it's not just God and then us. Of course, we all know there's angels, right? That's, that's common, uh, especially as we approach Christmas time. But there's lots more. The Bible has lots of names for them. He calls them angels and seraphim and cherubim and the sons of God and Elohim. And every time this plural phrase, the sons of God is used in the Old Testament, it refers to spiritual beings. Just every other time, right? So that's Job uh, 1.6, Job 2.1, et cetera, et cetera, through uh, Deuteronomy, Psalms, Daniel. So the point is Genesis 3, human rebellion through seeing that something's good and taking it for yourself. Genesis 6, spiritual rebellion. They saw that the daughters of man were good and they took, they took them, they seized them. Why does that matter? Because in this careful story, God is teaching us that humanity's sin problem, our sin problem is really complicated. It is just not straightforward. If Genesis three were the only rebellion story, it would be pretty straightforward. Like, yeah, we were deceived, but we sinned. We chose the evil and we're the villain, right? We have personal evil in us and we chose it. That is true, that is true. But Genesis 6 comes along and adds another layer. It says that human women became the object of desire for something powerful. It's oppression. It's pure evil. It's abuse. In other words, because of the spiritual rebellion, we are both the perpetrators of horrible sins and the victims of horrible evil. 
Those are both true of you, and they're both true of me. You might say that we're sinners and slaves to sin. That's how the New Testament talks about it. So on the one hand, we deserve to be judged. We've rebelled against God. But on the other hand, we need to be saved. Like I said, human sin is very complicated. So if you're familiar with the phrase Stockholm Syndrome, it refers to a psychological phenomenon when someone who is kidnapped and held hostage begins to identify and relate to their captors. You know the the idea. It's a messy and complicated psychological reality where the victim begins to relate to the villain, maybe begins to side with the villain. Our sin and wickedness comes from within us and also presses down from outside of us. Don't you know that to be true? Doesn't that experience, like, doesn't that jive with your experience? You, you might... You might have a new resolve for pure eyes and a clean mind. And you drive down the freeway and a billboard comes at you out of nowhere or a magazine article or an Instagram picture. And then you love it and take it. On the one hand, you hate the thing and you don't want the sin. And on the other hand, you welcome it in. It's like our dog when, you know, when Greyfriar's inside and someone approaches the house and he starts barking up a furious storm, the minute that person steps in the door, he goes, welcome new master, welcome to your home. That's what we do with evil. We can say, stay out, stay out, stay out, and opens the front door and Stockholm syndrome kicks in. The narrative of Genesis itself, as it goes on, shows us that this Stockholm syndrome of sin took hold of humanity and did not let go. The problem is not solved by the flood. Every single time that the New Testament references this passage in Genesis 6, it also references uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. It's Genesis 19. So it's very interesting. If you want to see where Jesus and Peter and Jude talk about Genesis 6 and the sons of God and the flood, you're going to also find Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you remember the story, Sodom and Gomorrah? Two angels visit Sodom to save righteous Lot and his family before they rain fire and brimstone down from God on the city for judgment, for their wickedness. And if it reminds you of the flood and Noah being preserved from judgment, it should. So in Genesis 6, the sons of God desire after the daughters of man. And in Genesis 19, the men of the city desire after these two angels who are visiting. They're inversions of each other. The Stockholm syndrome of sin by Genesis 19 had fully set in. So don't think that this can't be our reality today here because, well, didn't the flood take care of that problem? It was a problem for Sodom and Gomorrah. Jesus says it's a problem now. Peter and Jude say it's a problem now. This describes our present condition, our present reality. Genesis 6 verse 5 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man multiplied in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart heart was only evil continually. This, This level 
This escalation of evil and wickedness demands divine judgment. This morning I was reading a weird journal article uh, and came across a reference to the Atrahasis epic. (laughs) I love uh, old mythology stuff. So this Atrahasis epic predates the writing of the Bible, right? Um, From what we can tell, it's a Akkadian, Mesopotamian story of a worldwide flood and this man, Atrahasis, who was saved in a giant boat through the flood. And in this Akkadian mythology, they explain why the flood came about. And it's because of this god Enlil. He got woken up from his nap by the noise that humans were making. And he said, wipe it clean. Get rid of them all. I can't sleep. (laughs) That's the backdrop to this story. (laughs) This true story is about not a god who can't sleep and we've irritated him, but about a god who sees that Only evil continually are the three words that describe our hearts. And he says, I can't let this continue. I can't let you do this to yourself. But if this spiritual rebellion had gotten inside of us, if we've become infected with this virus, then we're the problem. And how can we be saved? If God has to cleanse the earth and, and we're the evil that needs to be wiped off the face like crumbs off a plate? Where's the hope in that? God is right and just to cleanse the earth from evil. He must do it. His holiness demands it. His glory demands it. So how then can he sweep away sin and wickedness and evil and not sweep us away? Look at verse eight. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord the one glimmer of hope for humanity in this bleak moment is the one man, the one man on all the earth who God said, I can work with that. He has my favor. He's righteous. Now in this part of the story, Noah doesn't get um, a single line. He doesn't get any words to say. His script is just description and not dialogue. But we do learn a couple things about him. In Genesis 5, 28, his father Lamech prophesies about him and saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one will bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. And in Genesis 6, 9, we learn Noah, this is quote, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So here's a man who walks with God like Enoch does in the previous chapter who God just took. He didn't even die. Noah walks with God like Enoch and like Adam before the fall. Noah would bring comfort out of the cursed ground. And in case it's not clear, Noah is pointing forward to a better Noah. And in case it's not clear, Noah is not pointing forward to you and I, right? This is not four steps to salvation from a wicked generation, Noah is not primarily an example. He's primarily a type of Christ. He's primarily a shadow cast by the living Christ back into time to point to Jesus. The point of this story is not the example. It's it's that when wickedness becomes normalized and rebellion against God becomes the water we swim in, there is only one man 
who finds favor with God. And our hope for salvation is wrapped up in him. God looked at this one man who had his favor and he saved him and all his family. Everyone connected to the man who had the favor of God was saved. If we read this story and we just think, oh, these primitive ancient people, (laughs) they're silly stories, they're wickedness, they didn't know. But we've progressed. We've come along. We're missing the point. This describes a world very much like our own. We celebrate wickedness openly in our world. We normalize rebellion against God and his design. And I'm pretty certain if the Nephilim were standing here today, we'd elect them to office. And in Noah, like in Noah's day, we've got to be very clear that judgment is coming. It is. It won't be like a flood. Peter says it will be more like a fire. And we all know that the evil which demands God's judgment has gotten deep down inside us. So where is the hope? We need a Noah. We need a righteous man, a man who walks with God, who can find favor with God. Hebrews eleven seven says, by faith, those first two words are crucial to everything that follows. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So what's the secret to Noah's favor with God? Faith. Faith. Leaning on God with all of your weight. Taking God at his word. Trusting him to be the source of all your good. Not seeing what's good and taking it for yourself. Trusting God to be your good. God gets to say what's good. We sang it this morning in the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. If there's anything good in your life, it's from God. When we look to God in faith, when we lean on him in faith, God says, righteous. Even when we're sinners. Yeah. That's how we get the favor of God. But in all of human history, only one man has ever perfectly turned to God, has ever perfectly put his weight on God. Luke 2, 40, when Jesus is born, it says, and the favor of God was upon him. The favor of God was upon this boy who grew in wisdom and stature and then grew in favor with God and man. He's the one. God looked at his divine human son, Jesus Christ, and said, I'm going to save everyone in his family. Everyone connected to this one, I will save. Did you notice in the text that Noah was righteous? Noah found favor with God, but it doesn't say anything about his three sons. Noah was blameless in his generation. The language is more like from his generation. Out of all the generation of humanity, Noah was the blameless and righteous one. And by the way, Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. It does not say they were righteous, but they were saved. Not because of their righteousness, because of someone else's. 
For God to save the righteous man is justice. For God to save his family is mercy. Jesus is the embodiment of both the justice and the mercy of God. That takes us to the last point, point number three. I didn't announce point number two, but there you have it. Point number three, God's mercy is unsearchable. Genesis 6 is a super low point in the story of human history. And you could not invent a more serious indictment than the three words, right? Only evil continually. Are we any better? Am I any better? Maybe, maybe not. But I know one thing. I know that sin has gotten way deep inside of me. And that even though Jesus was kind enough to call me his family, I can't shake it. I know that. I know I can say with the Apostle Paul, I do not understand my own actions. I do the thing I don't want to do. And I don't do the thing that I want to do. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? If God is going to cleanse this earth from wickedness, he'll have to sweep me away too. I'm not being hyperbolic. That would be just. I've betrayed God. But God simply refuses to choose between justice and mercy. God is just. God is merciful. We know these things. We see his character in scripture. But most of all, God is love. And his love isn't set apart in contrast to his justice and his mercy. His love encompasses and describes all of who God is. So his love, his very character and nature, moves him to find a way to be completely just and unsearchably merciful. This is not weird and ancient. This is about you and me and Jesus. God looked at you and me in the midst of all the evils that we have done and suffered. And he chose to undergo our punishment himself and just lavish us with mercy. It's unsearchable. Nothing can give you the power to turn away from the sins that constantly just drag you down and harm you. Like staring at the mercy of God in Christ. You want to get traction in holiness? You want to grow as a Christian? You want to look like Christ? You want to get unstuck from the sins that just keep dogging after you? Apprehend the mercy of God in Christ. Get your hands around it. That's what apprehend means. Catch it. Grab it. Wrap your heart around it. Your mind around it. Gaze at it. The unsearchable mercies of God in Christ That's our way forward, guys. (laughs) Well, we talk about it a lot, the deep commitment that we have from 2 Corinthians 3, 18, that we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And this is from the Lord who is the spirit. The glory of the Lord is the mercy of God in Christ. If you want to live like Jesus and look like Jesus and love like Jesus, stare at that mercy. When spiritual evil infected uh, and invaded this world and human hearts, 
What was the result? It's weird. It's giants. <laughs> Look at Genesis 6.4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The result of this unholy union was a culture, a people of might makes right and self-made manism. Mighty men, men of renown. That's tongue in cheek. It's men of the name, men who have made a name for themselves. I've really pulled myself up by the bootstraps. Look how strong I am. There is no cocktail of evil more potent than those two things. The pinnacle of evil. Look, this is the weirdest text I've ever had the privilege of preaching. <laughs> but I know that I'm preaching to people whose deepest need is not to grasp the mysteries of the Nephilim. Your deepest need and mine, if there's any hope for us, for salvation and healing, it's not in self-reliance and pride might, all of that. It's in God-reliance and humility, faith. All right, let's pray and go to communion. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your son. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for your rich mercy. Please fix our eyes upon the grace of Christ and make us more like Jesus for his glory and for our joy. Amen.